Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition, number the 46th edition of For What It's Worth podcast, believe it or not. Um, this is the crazy part. I had just uploaded the 45th episode today and haven't even released it, uh, but I'm doing and recording the 46th episode in the same day. Uh, it's been, even for me, my standards of content production today was kind of off the charts. Uh, as I mentioned before, I think last episode... I got 19, I think, blog uh, assignments given to me. I've made it through two of them. I did one. Uh, I'm write, writing an essay for AG23, which I started this morning. It's the third attempt at this. I've written two two essays before. I'm not happy with either one. So I started the third one this morning. Then I wrote a blog post. Then I drove to a friend's house because I needed this high-speed internet to, to uh, download a bunch of stuff. Came home, ma- wrote another blog post made a film, an entire film, in an hour between blog posts. And that's doing the voiceover, editing the stills, editing the motion, compiling it, putting it together, exporting it, and it's uploading right now. And then I wrote another blog post, and now I'm doing this recording. And that's kind of, I guess, a typical a typical day. It's cold here. It's snowing. It started snowing about late morning. I got over to my friend's house. I got my work done, and he's an older guy that... I try to get out into the neighborhood every couple of days, keep keep his ass in shape, and um, we walked in a absolute uh, uh, blizzard, and we were just covered in snow by the time we got back to his house. Uh, thank you very much to the folks at Beyond Clothing for keeping my skinny ass warm. As you know, Beyond is the sponsor and co-partner in uh, AG23, and I think they know how skinny I am and how pathetic I am in cold weather. And so they've been kidding me with some stuff and I have to say it works. So uh, I'm I'm sort of on the fence about whether or not I'm going to tell you that much about this equipment and gear from gloves to jackets and pants and stuff, because I don't want it to seem like an infomercial. Uh, This is the first time this has ever happened to me. It's the first time that any association with any other brand has ever led to me getting anything. And I feel, you know, a part of me is like stoked because I'm wearing this stuff every single day, all day long for weeks and months at a time. I think I'm actually a perfect case study because I'm not an expedition person. I'm not a professional athlete. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a dude who lives, who's really skinny, who has poor circulation, who has nerve damage in his arms and legs from taking antibiotics for two years with Lyme. Uh, I'm a mess, basically. And so when it gets cold like this, I'm freezing all the time. And so it's been probably one of the single most important acquisitions for me in my adult life is literally getting this clothing. I know that sounds crazy, but it is because it's, again, on me all day, every day. I'm wearing three or four layers right now inside the house. So anyway, let's move on because we have some good and funny stuff uh, to get to get to. Who is this podcast for? If you're turning in and you're like, this guy is an idiot. He's a rambling mess and should be imprisoned. This podcast is for anyone who thinks that carob sucks and is no real replacement for chocolate. And the reason I say that is because as a kid, my parents, my mother in particular, was kind of a kind of a hippie which if you met her now, you would not believe. But back in the day, you know, she had hair all the way down to her butt. Um, she was a vegetarian. And she, we had a house that was void of sugar. So my parents read this book in the 70s called Sugar Blues, and that was it. There was no more sugar in our house for years. And so I would go to my friends' houses, and they were like drinking, you know, shotgunning Cokes and uh, eating Cocoa Puffs all day long. And I was so jealous because my mom was like, look, 
we don't have chocolate, but we have this thing called carob, and it's just as good. And whoever said that, my mom is going to hell for sure for saying that because eating carob is torture. It's torturous, and it is in no way, shape, or form does it resemble chocolate. And if you're one of those people that says, look, carob sucks, and quit trying to, to, uh, to con me on this, then hey, welcome aboard. Come on in. This podcast is for you. Our hero of the week, I do not know her name because I caught this story late. I was waiting in the, uh, in the car after getting my new phone for the second time, which I'll explain in a minute for my tech woes continue, which is hard to believe, but it's, you know, if you know me, it's not that hard to believe. Uh, and I was listening to the NPR, and there was a story about a, an Australian epidemiologist, a woman who I think is sort of the point person uh, for epidemiology in Australia. And the host was saying, how the heck, you guys have reduced your case, active case number to zero twice since March. So Australia right now has a grand total of 47 COVID cases. Uh, in the entire country, and they've done an incredible job. And this epidemiologist, one, had a sense of humor, two, spoke incredibly well, uh, and three, broke down how Australia was able to do this in terms of a, I think it was called a COG, a, a collection of governors, or I'm getting that wrong. I know that's not right. But anyway, Australia had a plan, and they were able to get all of the governors, uh, both the prime, the prime minister at the national level, and then the state leaders together, and they were not always in agreement, but they were able to work together to put a plan in place of closing the international borders, closing state borders. And she said for four months, there was a period of you can only leave your house for one hour a day uh, for four months. And she was like, we weren't sure that was going to work, but Australians being Australians, they were like, yeah, this sucks, but we're going to do this. And it wasn't perfect and it wasn't pretty, but they got through it and the case numbers you know, leveled off. And so when Americans look out and see these films of Australia... We hate you even more. I mean, that's what we're really thinking is like, that's no fair. If we could give you our COVID scenario, we would because that's what we do. But no, we can't. And you're way ahead of us. So it's painful as an American to look at how not only how poorly we responded to it, to COVID and the idea that there's a pandemic, but how we continue to unravel at an unprecedented level. I mean, to watch American society now and watch us implode and draw the lines and division and threaten people and just really come unhinged across the board is kind of unsettling. It's, it's just, and it's kind of pathetic. That, maybe that's a better word. It's not like I'm fearful of what's happening in our culture. It's pathetic, and I just kind of look around and think, man, and I hear a woman like this speaking so eloquently and at least basically detailing a, a layered, detailed plan for what to do in case this happened. And I was like, I don't know who you are, but you're my hero of the week. My scum of the week, oh, this one, this was easy. I mean, there's a lot of people that could get scum of the week. The scum of the week are all these tech moguls who are fleeing Northern California for Texas and for South Florida under these veiled political reasons. These people are full of shit. You cannot listen. My experience, this is, and this is just, take it for what it's worth. I've been going, until recently, going in and out of San Francisco on a monthly basis for the last 10 years and watching that city change. And I'm sure that there are positive aspects of the change in San Francisco, but what I saw with my limited experience, granted, was a negative change of a combination of gentrification, mental illness, I guess you would say, 
um, you know, needles from the train station to the office, stepping over, you know, homeless folks and, and people with psychiatric issues and drug addiction issues. And at the same time, watching the tech world suck that place dry. And I have never in my experience in life come anywhere near finding a greedier bunch of people than the big tech people. One of these guys or people moved to Miami did under some veiled political California's just being run into the ground and then turned around and bought a $42 million mansion in Florida. What kind of an a-hole does that? And we're going to talk a lot about money in this podcast. And I have absolutely no problem with people making money. And I don't think we should necessarily just penalize people because they've made money because a lot of people who are making money are working their asses off. But to me, to, to spend $42 million on a house is representative of every single thing that's wrong with our culture and society. And these tech people have proven over and over and over, they do not have your best interest in mind. They don't have my best interest. They don't have society's best interest. They have their own self-interest at heart, period, end of story. You know, for Zuckerberg to continue to claim, well, I'm here to connect people. No, you're not. You're here to mine people, and you've proven it over and over and over again. Now, we're going to get to Facebook in a minute because I'm actually going to defend them for a minute here coming up, but it's something to think about. So you... You people, the, the, the tech people who are leaving for Austin and Miami, the people of Austin and Miami, you better brace yourself because they're going to come in and they're going to take what you have and they're going to change it and they're going to scorch it and they're going to leave and go somewhere else. They're like locusts when they come in. So fair warning. Okay, question of the week before we get to my 10 points. Question of the week. And this is going to be a short podcast because like I said, I got to get back to my film upload and I've got a million other things to do and it's already dark. And uh, God, I've been working for... 13 hours straight, which is not, I don't know, it doesn't feel that it doesn't feel that long, which is probably not good if I'm getting used to this kind of thing. Anyway, what else am I going to do? It's dark and 12 degrees outside. Okay, question of the week. What's Mexico going to pay for now? If, uh, if the stable genius said that they were going to pay for the border wall, and they didn't, and no one in his circle seems to figure that out, um, what are they going to pay for next? Because um, I would love for Me- maybe Mexico will pay for our healthcare system. Because the stable genius promised a healthcare plan in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020, and he keeps saying it's coming in two weeks. And he said that now for four years. So I am starting to think there's no healthcare plan. And so if those Mexican people can't pay for the border wall, then maybe they should pay for our health care. I think that's just about as likely as Mexico paying for the border wall. But this brings me to, to our first point of the week. And I think this kind of sums up the lunacy of this whole border wall thing. Now, I am a fortunate person in the sense that I have been fortunate enough to cross back and forth across the U.S.-Mexico border many, many, many times from Texas to California in remote sections, in the middle of big cities, middle of small towns. I've driven along the backside of the border wall for miles and miles and miles. I've actually spent more time on the Mexican side of the wall than I have on the American side, at least in close proximity. Uh, And that doesn't really count crossing back and forth into Tijuana like over and over and over again back in the day with my bud Eric and his, his Mazda 3 that we painted a number 7 on the side, and we called it Numero Siete. And we made, we made this spoof on this little tinny Mazda that we made it look like it was fast because it was so slow and so tinny and so chintzy 
that we just couldn't stand ourselves. And so if I say to him now, all I have to do is say numero siete, and he'll laugh because he knows what I'm talking about. So he and I used to go back across the border all the time. He actually went a lot more than I did. And Eric, by the way, owns the last name of La Bastida. And if you don't know his work from Tijuana, he's a photographer, 35 millimeter black and white, like a photographer. He doesn't work as a photographer. He never has, had no interest in that. But he lived in San Diego for years, and his work on the border in, in Mexico is really good. Uh, and uh, we used to cross back and forth. I went across a ton in Texas. Um, El Paso was one of my favorite places to go across. I've spent a lot of time in Nogales, Mexico, and Arizona. I've actually been in the sewers between Nogales, Arizona, and Mexico. And some guy tried to stab me while I was making pictures in there. And someone threw a railroad spike at my head. Missed. Haha. <laughs> um, but the guy that was going to stab me was probably going to stab me if it weren't for the reporter, Mark, out there. Mark, wherever you are, I haven't talked to you in 15 years. But uh, Mark gave me a heads up, and I turned around, and this drunk guy was um, he was going to stab Uncle Dano. And I, but he telegraphed it, because when you're drunk, it's really hard to get your knife-fighting skills honed at the level for effectiveness. And so his borrachoness was what saved me because he telegraphed the stabbing motion. And I was like, I could see it coming like two days before. So it wasn't, I don't want to make it sound like life or death. Um, it wasn't, but it was somebody trying to stab me. And I think that was the last time it happened. So I want to tell you a little story that happened last week. You probably saw this, but if you didn't, this is our first point of the week, is that American border firms who are hired to build the border wall were illegally hiring Mexican security to guard the border wall by illegally crossing over and guard, guarding their operations. They also illegally built roads on the backside to access the places they were. They didn't have permission to build these roads, and they did anyway. And then our companies illegally hired uh, Mexican workers to illegally cross the border to guard the operations here. If this doesn't sum up the insanity of building this border wall, I don't know what does. And again, most of the people that I know that I know well who are up in arms about like illegal immigration, who are screaming that we have to shut the border and build this wall, they've never been there. And the destruction that's happening along the Mexican border because of this wall, it will take decades to undo. They are racing to try to get this, and they're blasting through um, Native American land. They're blasting through national monuments. They're blasting through ecosystems, and they are doing everything they can, regardless of whether or not it's legal or illegal. And this story about illegally hiring guards to come over, illegally crossing the border to guard the operations, that to me sort of sums up how, how ridiculous this entire project is. My hope is that Biden comes in shuts it down immediately. I don't think he's going to do that. I think it's going to be a lot harder to shut down than you think. And it's going to, it's going to be like a, a cough that you can't get rid of that just lingers and lingers and lingers because these people are not going to leave. There's so much corruption happening with these companies. They're overinflating their bills, all kinds of stuff, which is typical that happens when there's government work involved. But that was a great story that came out this week. And it just, was I surprised? No. Not one bit whatsoever. And the border, by the way, if you have never been there, it's fantastic. It's one of the most interesting places. And if you're a photographer, the border, you could work on the border the rest of your life and never get bored. It's just incredible. And the diversity between, let's say, South Texas and Southern California is incredible. And even here in New Mexico, I've been down a few times. I haven't spent a lot of time on the New Mexican side. Uh, I mean, on the Mexico side here in New Mexico, because the town that's there 
the, the last time I went down there, the day before there'd been like 10 people executed in the middle of the day in the square on the, on the other town. I was like, you know, I think I'm going to, uh, I'm going to skip this one for now with my cameras and I'm going to, you know, shoot selfies here on the, on the U S side. Okay. So I gave you the whole sob story last week of my tech woes with my new iPhone 12 and my laptop and the laptop, by the way, is totally fine. Um, yes, the battery is very, very short-lived, but I have it plugged in most of the time, and I'm not necessarily, yes, if I'm in the van, I have to charge it three, four times a day, but it's not that big of a deal, and it's fa- way faster than my old computer. It really is. Uh, I'm still, after another week of using it, I'm still not in love with the keyboard. I got my DAS keyboard, and that thing is way nicer, and again, I've got you know 17 more posts to write right now, so I'm writing on it all day long. So, the laptop, I'm going to leave. Oh, there's one thing I forgot to mention about the laptop, though, in the last one, the review, sort of pseudo-review of this thing, is it has a touch bar. And for the life of me, I don't know. It, the, the, the touch bar seems to do a lot. So when I'm in different programs, I notice that the t- touch bar changes. And you can probably use the touch bar to do some things but it's so small and it's so far away that to see it, I have to put my glasses on. And then if I put my glasses on, then I can't see what's up close. And I look at that touch bar and I'm like, I have a mouse. Why would I need the touch bar? It's the weirdest kind of thing. It feels like Apple ran out of innovation and said, we're going to put this touch bar on there. If there's a way to use this creatively and efficiently, please let me know because I'm not opposed to using it. I'm just kind of baffled by it. When, when I look at the touch bar, And I see, and I think to myself, and look, Apple deserves a ton of credit for innovation over the years, so don't get me wrong. But when I look at the innovation levels or standards that are happening right now, and I see that touch bar, the only thing that pops into my head is the Asus ZenBook Pro Duo. And if you don't know what that is, look it up. Asus ZenBook Pro Duo laptop with the two screens. Look at that innovation. And look at how those screens, the size of them, the capabilities, how they work together. And how, let's say, for example, if you're cutting a film, how you might be able to use those two screens as opposed to Apple's touch bar. That, to me, shows a significant lapse right now in sort of Apple uh, technology. The second thing about the laptop now that I'm thinking about it is that there's no touchscreen. And once you get used to using a touchscreen, it is so oddly aggravating to go back to a regular tab. I, I, I hit my laptop screen twice today with my index finger, not remembering that the Apple's not a touchscreen. And that's probably because they don't want to cut into their iPad sales, which I get. But again, it's like they're trying to drive people to tablets. And if they put a touchscreen in the laptop, why would I ever buy an iPad kind of thing, especially if you have a pen? Microsoft, the Windows side has had this for years. The Asus ZenBook's another example. I would use that all the time because I use my iPad all the time. And it would be so cool to have everything in one device so I'm not carrying around a bag of electronics because, as you know, my death ray disables all electronics. So let me give you a little update here, especially on the iPhone, because this is important because I've already had a bunch of people reach out to me and say, thank you for telling me this because I was about to go upgrade. So I mentioned that my iPhone seemed like it was not working well. And there was no signal, and the battery sucks. So I started calling Apple, and I'm on with Apple tech support, and they are, of course, Apple does exactly what you expect them to do, which is they always say, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of this issue. When I had an iMac G5, 
Okay, this is going back to probably the late 90s, early 2000s. I had an iMac G5, and I bought it, and a ton of my friends bought it. And one day, my friend George calls me out of the blue and goes, turn it off, unplug it, unplug it, it's going to melt down. And I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, all the G5's iMacs came with a faulty power supply. Mine just blew up. I lost everything. And so I go, oh, no, no, and I unplug it. So I go to the local Mac, not the Apple store, which I'm not even sure was there at the time. I go to um, the local Mac computer place in Southern California where I lived. And as I'm standing in line to get mine repaired, I turn around and there's like six people in line behind me and they all have iMac G5s. And everyone goes, oh, the power supply blew up, man, it blew up. So Apple's like, don't know what you're talking about. Well, it turns out that they all had faulty power supplies, right? It was just a known thing and that became a huge thing. And then they had to replace all these power supplies. Then I bought a MacBook. I was in Hawaii covering the Pipeline Masters. I bought a MacBook, a black one. It was the first MacBook series. Got it, blows up. Bad came with a faulty Hitachi hard drive. All of this this batch that I got, they all came with faulty Hitachi hard drives. So that blew up. I bought an, a, 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 what was it called? It was called a Mac, Pro, not a Mac Pro. It was a, it was a tower. It was the last real tower that Apple made before the new towers. And it was great. And I still have it. And it has like four in, removable internal hard drives. It had a ton of power. It is my, It was my primary computer for a decade. It also had an inherent flaw that Apple admitted was there but couldn't fix. And they were like, we know it's, it's maddening, it's aggravating, we can't fix it, we know it's there, sorry, kind of thing. So when Apple says about my iPhone 12, don't know what you're talking about, I was very polite and I said, well, just Google it. You know, it'll take you three seconds about what it did me, typed in iPhone 12 signal, boom, pops up. There's 500 articles about, quote, thousands of people who have these bad phones. So I reach out to Blurb Tech Support. He says, my phone's fine, must be you. Um, I reach out to another friend who has the iPhone 12 mini. He says, must be you. Um, mine's fine, of course, which is what Apple apologists always say. It's, it's always you, you, you. And so I'm like, well, maybe it is me. So I start calling around. And I'm like, this phone is definitely not right. And I can sit it on the table and watch the cell signal going in and out. It'll go, f it, like without moving the phone, it would go from five bars of 5G to one bar, to no signal, where you have literally this the battery emblem, and then there's four little dots with no signal, and then it would go 4G, LTE, 4G, 5G, 4G, LTE, without touching the phone. And I'm like, that's not right. So I finally, Apple, I give up on, because get this, I call Apple, I have Apple Care, I have, I'm, I'm on their lease program, I'm on the upgrade thing, and the woman says, well, you can send us the phone, and then we keep it for seven to 10 days, and then we decide whether or not we're going to replace it. And I said, well, you're going to send me a phone in the meantime, right? And she goes, no. And I go, so let me get this straight. I just, I just bought a brand new phone from you. It doesn't work. And there's two people on the phone at this point. And one of them is like, dude, this is bad. This is a faulty phone. We should replace it. And the other one who happens to be the supervisor is holding the line of, I've never heard of this problem before. And she's like, nope. And we keep it for seven to 10 days. And then if we decide to replace it, we will send it to you. And if not, then you're basically out of luck. And I said, I said, I'm sorry, but this is my only phone. My whole business runs through it. All my work calls. She was like, not my problem. So I said, great. I got an idea. Cancel my lease. And there's like silence on the phone. And I go, this is, the, I'm on the 14th day of my 14 day window. Cancel the lease. I'm done with Apple. And with, in terms of leasing from Apple. And she's like, okay, I'll do that. So they refund everything. I box up the phone and I um, get ready to ship it. So I drive over to T-Mobile, which is my cell carrier. And T-Mobile, um, the folks at T-Mobile are awesome. They're always super cool. 
and I, I'm a little bit paranoid about going in there because of COVID. I don't want to hang around in there forever. But I go in, and it smells like disinfectant, and there's only three people, and they're all on opposite sides of the room, and there's no one else in there. So I go in, and the woman says, how can I help you? And I go, let me tell you a, a long story in a really short form. And before I can say, like, two minutes into this story, she goes, my phone was bad, too. My iPhone 12 was bad, and I called the manager of the other store in town, and his iPhone 12 was bad. And she goes, yeah, the signal thing is really bad, but it's not an officially acknowledged problem from Apple yet. But she goes, the battery issue with the iPhone 12 is now officially a problem. They've admitted that the battery on the iPhone 12 is bad, and there's a, there's a fix for it. And, and they're like, there's probably no fix for the signal, and that's why they're not acknowledging it. So I go over and I talk to the guy and I said, look, you know, I need to look at what my options are. So I said, I can get another iPhone 12, hopefully get a good one, or I can try something else. And the other phone I was looking at was the Samsung S20, I think. And I found out that Samsung has stronger antennas and they have higher data connection than iPhones do. And that's across the board. So if you search for phones with the highest and best cell phone reception, the top like eight of 10 are Samsung phones. But the problem is, one is Samsung is Android, and I'm not a huge fan of the Android interface. And two, transferring everything over from my iPhone is a pain in the ass, and everything else in my network, my wife's network, and my work's network is all Apple. So I've had a Samsung phone before, and I loved the phone. I thought it was light years beyond the iPhone at the time. I had the Note, one of the Notes, and it was like just, I, you know, I kind of looked at, again, I looked at what Apple was doing and said, man, their innovation is just not good. But when you're in the ecosystem, we all know the story. It's just easier to stay there. And then when I transfer data to the new phone, you just put them next to each other. You hit go, and it transfers all your stuff over. And 12 minutes later, you're done. And I was like, okay, I'm already behind. I'm, I'm wasting my work hours time to get this phone done. So I get another iPhone 12. I just say, okay, whatever. I have 14 days. If it's bad, as, if it's like the first one and it's that bad, then I can just return it, and then I'll get the Samsung. So we open the new one. And we put it next to my original iPhone 12. And you can just see the original iPhone 12 signal bouncing all over the place. It's going, and the new iPhone 12 is just five bars of 5G and does not move the entire time. And, and the, the technician and I are looking, and I said, look at the cell signal. And he looks at it, and he goes, oh, no, I just ordered an iPhone 12 Max. I hope I get a good one. So when I was chatting with T-Mobile tech support online, they said, we are, quote, now replacing iPhone 12s right and left. So for those of you Apple apologists out there who don't believe that this is a real thing or you believe that it's just me, it's not. It's all four models. It's on all carriers. And now it's all over the world. So this is a reality. This is not the first time this has happened to me with Apple phones. So for those of you out there who always point the finger, and I got this a lot over the last two days, which, and it's over and over again. It's only you, Milner. I'm fine. I'm fine. I've never had a problem. I've never heard of this, whatever. Well, guess what? It's real. The mighty Apple has issues with their brand new product. But here's the good news. The new phone seems to be awesome. I'm uploading a 658 meg YouTube film right now through my phone, and it's flying. And I'm like, it, it's way faster than my 11 was and way better and more stable than the original 12 was. The signal is still maybe not perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better. And I know now for certain that that original phone is flawed beyond recognition. So if you're in the, 
If you are in the market to upgrade, make sure when you upgrade that you note that you're aware of these two problems and have them put it in your record because if they try Apple Apple was no help at all. I mean, they basically turned their back on me as fast as they possibly could. T-Mobile was the one that stepped up and took care of me. So I will not lease phones from Apple anymore. I'm only going to go through carriers. And that way, if they suck, I can jump over. And I'm kind of curious about the Samsung stuff. The S20 is not the phone that like is, gets me excited, but I think Samsung is doing some really cool things. OnePlus is also doing some cool stuff. Okay, uh, moving on. Let's see, what do I want to talk about here? Uh, the last post today is going to be really good, but we're on point three, which is about filmmaking progress. I had my first person reach out today and ask me advice about filmmaking. That is the first time that's ever happened, which is hilarious because I don't really know what I'm doing. I can barely use Premiere. And the film that I just made right before I started this podcast, I did the whole thing in an hour. I told you, it's not great. I mean, I, I, that's all the time I have. So it's not like I'm sitting with Premiere and saying, hmm, I'm going to create my own transitions today because I have so much time to sit here and study how to do this. I don't. I don't have any time at all. I have that one hour, and it's like whatever happens in this hour, I'm going to put my name on it and send it out. And people may like it. They may not like it. I don't care. I want to sort of keep the filmmaking ball rolling. Um, the other thing I realized in the field once again, I, Saturday, so the film that I just put out the last hour, the whole thing was done in a half a day on Saturday at a place called Bosque del Apache, which is in southern New Mexico, and it's a giant migratory bird protected area. It's absolutely unbelievable. If you get a chance to go to the Bosque, it's worth going, even if you don't know anything about birds. If you think you're not impressed by birds, you will go and you will be impressed by birds, trust me. And so I have a half day, and I am just like the guy with the one-man band. I've got the drum, I've got the kick drum, I've got the guitar, I've got the Neil Young harmonica in my mouth, I've got the cymbal on my head, and it's Fuji X-T4, Fuji X-T2 times 2, it's my audio recorder, it's my you know juggling lenses and concepts in my head. As I'm, I look like a, a maniac. I look like I'm wandering around talking to myself, because I am. And I'm, I'm trying to fabricate this idea in my head and cram all this content. And plus, I'm writing. So I'm writing the, the voiceover in my head as I'm working and trying to shoot long lens, short lens, motion, double exposures, and details so that I can build something when I'm done. And then, I'm, and then thinking of like long-term archives. So like what other footage can I make that I might not use on this film, but as long as I'm here, I could make it, whether it's like flying a drone over a body of water or whatever. And the thing is, you cannot do it all. And you realize pretty quickly, it's like, have you ever played that game where you bend over and you, there's, a little metal, there's a little wooden stick and part of the stick is on the, one end is on the ground and the other end is touched, is pressed to your forehead and then you spin around the stick, and then you stand up real quick. And you're so dizzy that you just literally go cascading off. Like you could go into traffic, or you could go off the side of a cliff. You can't stop yourself. You're that dizzy, and then you, you end up like landing on your shoulder. And as a kid, when you did this, your body's like Gumby, and you're fine. As an adult, you would be shattered into a million pieces, and you would be in ICU right now. That's how it feels to make films, by yourself in the field. And I totally and utterly botched something this past Saturday that is haunting me, which is audio recordings. So I have this binaural audio mic set, which is unbelievable. And I'm in the middle of literally hundreds of thousands of geese and sandhill cranes taking off at the same time. And the noise and the sound that sandhill cranes make is unbelievable. So 
I'm like, oh, I'm a, I'm a genius. I'm going to record this with binaural sound, and it, it will sound like you're in the middle of this liftoff. And I forgot between the binaural mics and the recorder is an amp, a little tiny amp, and I forgot to plug it in, and I went direct from the headset, my, my mics, into the recorder, and it didn't work. And I knew it didn't work because I could hear it, and I couldn't figure it out in the field. And I'm too stupid because I was doing seven things at the same time, and now I blew all my audio recordings. So I have to go back to Bosque just to record audio because it's that good, and I blew it. So filmmaking, if you're thinking about doing it, eliminate as much as you possibly can. Go out with specific goals of shooting motion on one day, and then go back and shoot stills, and then go back and do audio, and then go back and just make observations and write. If you have to do it all at the same time like me, it doesn't work that well. And your films are going to look like mine, and they're going to look like okay, but not enough of any one thing to be good. So anyway, that's that's my, my take. Okay. When I was 19, let's go back to 1993, 93, 94, 95-ish in that time frame. I, I got an internship at the Arizona Republic in 1993. That was my first real big newspaper internship as a photographer. I was supposed to stay three months and I stayed a year and a half. They couldn't hire me at the time for a lot of political reasons and reasons that I don't want to get into now because it might sound bad. And it's not bad about me. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was not the right demographic that they could hire at the time. I'll just put it that way. And this was consistent at the time. I had lost a job for a wire service uh, because of the same issue. I'd lost a fellowship to the Middle East. I'd lost internships. I'd lost all kinds of stuff because at the time, they could not hire my demographic. No big deal. So I'm lingering around the paper because they can't hire me and I have nowhere else to go. And I was renting a room at somebody's house out in the suburbs, and I would drive from his house to the paper every day, pick up my assignments, go out and shoot. And on the way in, I would always listen to Howard Stern. And Howard Stern was on the radio at that time. He was not on satellite. And Stern, I absolutely loved. One, because you just never knew what he was going to say. And two, he was constantly getting fined and pushing the boundaries of what the FCC would allow him to get away with on regular radio. And he got away with stuff that you cannot believe. So funny. And I would be stuck in traffic, and I could look over at the cars around me and tell who was listening to Howard. Because you would just see people dying of laughter in the car, and you, 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 we'd look at each other, and people would just like start nodding because you knew you were listening to Howard. And I loved the fact that so many people were irate over him and upset by him and just incredulous that they would let this guy on the radio. But there was another side of him that these people were not considering. Howard was one of the best interviewers, basically the best journalist without being a journalist that was on, the, on air, and he still is. And that, this is the crazy thing, is Howard Stern does an interview like you and I would. He talks to a celebrity or a musician or an athlete or famous people, and he talks to them like a normal person. He talks to them like you and I would talk in private. There's no filter. And he's asking all the stuff that we want to know that the mainstream media journalists can't do because the corporations that are controlling them and what they can put on the air and what they can't, they're so limited by, by the by the atmosphere and the culture of today that I don't listen to mainstream journalist interviews anymore because they're really boring. Frontline, which I mentioned last week, is is really good for, for straight journalism interviews, but they're rare. Like for every Frontline, there's 5,000 CNNs that you're like, oh God, this is terrible. 
and Howard Stern is really good. And I just I just saw something that he had now either signed a new contract with Satellite Radio or extended his contract. And Howard Stern is making ninety million dollars a year. Think about that: ninety million dollars a year. Now that I'm not a math guy, but that seems like a lot of money. That's that's more than I'm making. Uh, a considerable amount more than I'm making. In fact, on the scale, my salary would not even show up on the scale if he was on the other end. But here's the thing, and we're going to talk about another person making even more money, uh, not, not actually not making quite as much money, but still a ridiculous amount of money later that just really doesn't deserve it in my mind. But Howard Stern brings entertainment to millions of people. And I, I actually hold that in high regard because there's so much negativity in the world and there's so much kind of craziness. If you want to go down those rabbit holes of, of darkness, you can. But Howard kind of gets people, he gets millions of people every single day to laugh. You may love him, you may hate him, but that is a public service that we, that we need. And he's good. He's very, very good at what he does. So I just want to say, you know what, Howard Stern, if you're making 90 million bucks a year, good on you. That's like, I'm, I'm happy for you. Okay, my wife's, this is point number five. My wife said something to me the other day that was typical wifely fashion, which was, she said to me, geez, you look old. Now, you might think that's an insult, but that's just how my wife operates, right? Now, if I said that to her, it'd be DEFCON 1, full jihad, I'd, I'd be in trouble by now. But, and I have no problem telling her, telling her that because that's how we roll, but... She pulls a photo. Someone of a friend of ours sent her a photo of me from like 1996. Right? I had long blonde hair. I had these little, you know, stylish little glasses. I had the, uh, you know, the 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 ever present little goatee. Uh, it was my Brad Pitt phase. You know, I looked like Brad Pitt, and uh, and my wife like whips out this photo on her phone, and then she looks at me in disgust, and she's like, God you look so old. And I was like, you know, an outsider looking in right now might be saying, God, that's awful. Like she would say that. But I was like, here's the, here's the lovely thing about my wife. My wife just looks at that picture from 96, face value, and then looks at me right now, face value. And does, not for one second takes anything that happened and transpired in between me now and that picture in 96, everything that transpired, nothing gets considered. It's just face value of, oh, wow, look how you used to look in 96. And now you just look like a mess, right? Now you're old. You're broken down. You're, you're lined. You've got, you know, baggage. And I was like, this is hilarious. Because if you think of, I, if I think back of what happened in my life in 96, between that point and now, I'm actually happy to be alive. I really am. Five years of Lyme disease by itself was uh, really turned me inside out. It, it, my life could be broken down into two chapters, which is pre-Lyme and post-Lyme. It's something I still have to think about and deal with. I took antibiotics, three antibiotics twice a day for, for two years. Think about that. And all the doctors were like, this is going to destroy you, but it's the best chance we have of killing this bacteria. I think of all the times I had pneumonia, had walking pneumonia. I, you know, bounced off, fell off rock ledges into cactuses. You know, I spent hours and hours, days and days in bright sun, like waiting for photos. I, all of this stuff that I traveled. I mean, for Blurb over the last decade, 
there was about a six-year span where I was on the road all the time. I was in an airplane, airports, hotels. That is really unhealthy. That is, there's no way. And so it just, you know, I always joke that I'm high miles, but the way that she brought it up was just so effortlessly horrible that I just wanted to share it with you because that's what being married is. If you're on the fence, that's what's coming. If you're like, oh, I love this person, I want to hold you forever, that same person is going to look at you in 25 years and go, God, you look like shit. So just get ready, okay? It's, it's love. It's what love is all about. All right, quick story here. You know I've been reading a lot about cybersecurity. I'm reading a book right now called The Cult of the Dead Cow, CDC, which is about the one of the first and most important sort of good hacking groups that landed here in America. It dates back to my middle school years, you know, the Commodore 64, war games, all of that same stuff that got us all of us jazzed about computers. It's a really good book. But something happened this week that's pretty interesting, which is FireEye, which is considered one of the top cybersecurity firms in America, got hacked by who they think is a nation state. Everyone's looking at Russia. Russia hacked FireEye, which is a, a, a main cybersecurity organization that's hired to help other people not get hacked and they got hacked and this is so fascinating to me this is active warfare but it's quiet it's silent and it's there and you don't know it and it's happening 24 7 and it's getting more and more and more invasive and to me it is like this we knew the pandemic was coming right we didn't know the specifics we didn't know the precise date but based on the the prior decade with SARS and MERS and all the other potentially close international pandemics, we knew it was a matter of time. And we were absolutely, utterly unprepared, at least here in the States. The same thing is happening with cybersecurity. We know it's coming. We know they're in the power grid. They, hadn't, we have, they haven't done anything with it yet, but they're there and they have the capability. And imagine what would happen when this goes full tilt, when something comes unglued and one of these nation states, it could be us for that matter, lets the genie out of the bottle and we can't put it back. And so it makes you rethink like the, the basic aspects of your life, food, water, shelter. And I'm not saying go be a prepper, like don't dig a hole and fill it with, you know, mustard gas and 40 millimeter, 120 millimeter mortars and razor wire. Don't do that. But I'm just saying like, think about not having power for a month and just kind of go, all right, I got to get my head around that. Might need some water, might need some food, might need some heat. Maybe an extra blanket, throw a jacket in, why not? But anyway, FireEye got hacked. Uh, great story. If you want to research it more, it's very interesting. Okay, moving on. And the last, two of the last three stories, this is the this is the fourth to last, but the two of the last three are really funny. So I'm, stick around. This one is about their 48 states yesterday came out and said, Facebook is a monopoly, we need to break it up. And you know my feelings about Facebook, right? I, I don't like it. I don't like what it's done to culture and society. I don't trust Mark Zuckerberg. I think he has a really hard time telling the truth. And we have more than one example of this going back to the day that Facebook launched all the way up until last week. So it's a consistent theme with him in my book. I, don't, I, I, I watch what Facebook has done to friends and family, and it's not good. It's very alarming. But I also look at them and say, well, yes, okay, technically you might consider them a monopoly for certain things, but this was not forced on the population. The population chose to engage, and still is. And I go back to the story that happened about a month ago 
which was Facebook is too big to break up because it would lead to financial and societal ruin. People are so connected and so dependent and so physically addicted to the platform that if you took it away in current form, it could end in disaster for culture and society. I actually believe that that is true. I believe that these people who are, who are receptive to atomized disinformation without Facebook would come unhinged and potentially take that same unhinged behavior that they are directing towards the platform and instead would direct it into society itself. And so I don't know if it's a great idea to break up Facebook. I don't know if it's possible to break up Facebook. Um, I do know that during the week of the election, there was supposed to be a blackout on political ads. And the reality of the matter was that Facebook users saw more political ads that week than the week prior. And it's not that Facebook cannot stop it, I don't think. It's because they don't want to, they don't need to. And so a part of me says, yes, we need radical change with Facebook, but I don't know if it's right to break it up. You know, it was his idea, apparently, well, maybe it was his or not. It was a combination of people's ideas. But it's weird when you start looking at monopolies and saying, we're going to break this up. And obviously, this has been part of our society for a long time, that the monopolies are not supposed to exist in this fashion. But it's an interesting story. I don't know if it's if anything is going to transpire. The Senate and the Congress in America is useless. This is a broken system that has been broken for decades, and it's worse and worse and worse. I heard uh, Tom Udall today describe it as the graveyard of ideas or something like graveyard of progress is what he called the Senate. He's leaving the Senate. And he said, this is a graveyard of progress. And I think that that is a perfect name for what's happened for the Mitch McConnells and Lindsey Graham's and Chuck Schumer's and Nancy Pelosi's of the world. This is broken, and these people are not serving us at all, and we need to wipe the slate clean and start over. So Facebook, um, I don't know. We'll have to keep an eye on it. Okay, I'm going to start with this boring story first and then these two funny stories at the end. Okay, there's an NBA player that just signed an extension for $190 million. And he plays about every third game. He's in all the games, but he just kind of sometimes he shows up and most of the time he doesn't. And he just signed an extension for 190 million bucks. If that doesn't sum up every single thing that's wrong with our culture and society, I don't know what does. Uh, it's, a, it's a bizarre thing to me, the pay scale for pro athletes in all sports, whether it's tennis, golf, football, baseball, basketball. It's absurd. It's crazy. I mean, I remember when Alex Rodriguez signed like a $270 million deal and everyone's like, oh my God, that's never going to be broken. Yeah, well, people are breaking that yearly yearly average. Um, it's over and over and over again. I don't know where it's going. I don't know how this works in a pandemic where so many people are hurting and yet this is still kind of going on. And again, you can't fault people. I don't fault this guy at all. If you can get it, get it. But where the hell's it coming from? If so many, 70 million people out of work, people are starving, they need jobs, they need money, and some guy's raking in 190 million bucks. That's just insane to me. I don't know what to do. Just wanted to throw it out there. I'm kind of baffled by the whole thing. Maybe I had too much mate. All right, last two stories. So I was in the car driving back from Bosque with my wife. We're in the van. And we, for whatever reason, we start talking about my life in some weird way. And I, and I, I realized that there's a year of my life that I've never told my wife about. And this was a year that I went to a college before I went to UT Austin, where I graduated with a degree in photojournalism. I went to another school for a year, another Texas state school. And this was my freshman year, which is completely awkward. 
I mean, just horribly awkward, right? And so uh, you have to live in the dorm. And so there are two facing dorms with a giant circular cafeteria in a separate building in the middle. So kind of looks like a DC spy, you know, government office. So there's like a five-story dorm on one side called 14. There's the cafeteria in the middle that's a circular thing where all the students from all the dorms would eat. And then I'm in the I'm in the dorm on the right which is 14 or 16. I was in 16. 14 was was referred to as the zoo. And 14 was like animal house. Someone gutted a deer in the showers. Someone let raccoons loose in the, in the ventilation system. It was chaos. There were parties every single day. I was in 16. Now, I spent a lot of time in 14 because I would go to those parties. And I was like, whoever gutted the deer is a genius. So I wanted to be in 14, but I'm in 16. And when you show up at school, you get assigned a roommate. You don't have a choice, I don't think. I mean, maybe if you came in with a friend, you could request that, but I didn't. I didn't know, I didn't know a single person at the school. And I was like, I'm going to go to the school, and I, and I end up getting assigned a roommate. And my roommate is a dear guy. He's a super nice guy who's also from Texas. And he, you know, he and I are, he, he was really intelligent, and he was into photography, actually, way before I was. And so, uh, you know, he had a camera, um, and he and I ran in different circles, but he was just a, a cool, like down to earth dude. And I have not talked to him in, since I left school at the end of that year. So, because at the time, and this is what my wife and I were talking about at the time, when you left whatever little town you were in, those circle of friends were gone because the only way to communicate was either a landline telephone or letters. So we would write letters back and forth, but then after a couple of times, you'd be like, I'm not writing any more letters, and then that was it. That person's out of your life forever. So my roommate and then my best friend at the time was another guy named Dan, and he and I, I hadn't spoken to Dan, either one of these guys, in 15 years. So I'm telling my wife about this crew of friends at the school, and so my roommate's first name was David, and my best friend's name was Dan, but then the other, so it's Dan and Dan and David, and then Doug, Dean, Dave, and Doug. So everybody's name started with a D. This was the crew, the party crew that we would go out and do crazy stuff. And so I'm telling her about all these people. And my wife's like, you've never told me about these people before. And I said, well, it wasn't purposeful. I just, you know, we never got around to it. We've only been together for 27 years. Like, give me a break. So as we're sitting there, she goes on LinkedIn and she finds Dan, the other Dan, who I've since reached out to. And now we're like communicating again after whatever. This was in I'm trying to think of what year this was, 1989, 88, I think it was, 1988. And I also reached out to my roommate. I've not heard back from him yet. I hope I do because, and I said to him, hey, I think you're this, you were my roommate at this school for a year. I apologize because I'm sure my hygiene was horrific. And if you don't want to talk to me ever again, I totally get it. But, you know, I just wanted to say you deserve some sort of prize for rooming with me for that year. But here's the great part. My roommate worked in the cafeteria. And so the cafeteria food at a college like that is horrific, right? You just have, it's a minefield of bad decisions. And you have to really know how to navigate the food or you're going to end up getting sick and eating horrible stuff. So one day I go back to the dorm room and my roommate is in there by himself, sitting at his desk, talking to himself and shaking his head. And I go, this is not good. So I'm like, what's up? And he turns and looks at me with this icy cold stare, putting a death shiver down my back. And he goes, don't eat the meat in the cafeteria. And I was like, and now my mom at the time is a vegetarian. And so 
I did not have a, well, I guess I had a fair amount of meat when I was still back at home, but you know, I was like, um, why? And so he goes, well, I was, uh, you know, taking a break. I was working in the cafeteria, took a break and I was outside and the food delivery truck drove up the supply truck. And he said, you know, I'm innocently standing there minding my own business. And they start to unload the meat that they're bringing into the cafeteria. And it's not these like giant sides and hocks of, of, of pork and beef, you know, with the fur still on. No, it's in boxes. And on the side of the box in big black stenciled letters, it says grade D as in Dan, but edible. Grade D, but edible. And he's like, don't eat the meat. So now I, being the shrewd college student who was getting $100 a month from my parents, that was my, that was my, I had 100 bucks a month total for everything, food, transportation. Uh, I was playing tennis at the time on the team and I would like break strings all the time and I had to restring. And there were plenty of times where I had to restring the racket, which meant I couldn't eat anything. So I would like pillage food from different places. And I, I, the, being the shrewd college student, I called my mom and I was like, mom, the meat in the cafeteria is grade D, but edible. And she's like, I'm going to send you a little more money. And I was like, yes, I can buy illegally buy more alcohol with that extra money. And I can eat fruit loops in the cafeteria. So that when he, when my roommate did us a solid and said, Hey, I just, I saw this, the putrid stuff they're bringing in. Don't eat the meat. I became a vegetarian overnight. And so at least at the time, and the, the, there were two main things I would eat, and one was Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops was my like two thirds of the day, from morning until the time we tried to sneak into bars at night. I basically was only eating Fruit Loops. But then after the bars, I'm trying to remember. I would have eaten anything at that point, but I can't remember. There were two staples. It was like green beans and Fruit Loops or something. I can't figure, I don't remember what it was. But anyway, great debit edible, great story. Okay, moving on, last part, last story. We've got about eight minutes here. Is I want to tell you about the first time I smoked pot. And the reason I bring this up, um, and this is a disaster, so don't do what I do. So I grew up in the 1980s, the Just Say No generation, 75-pound Nancy Reagan on television telling me that if I smoke pot, I'm going to be doing heroin by noon the same day. It's a gateway drug. Don't smoke pot. Don't do drugs. Don't do anything. Don't have fun. And I was just petrified. You know, like don't marijuana is will be the beginning of the end of my life. And so I never smoked pot. And I'm I'm being a little joking here. I had plenty of opportunities. You know, my my high school was being used by the cartels as a drug distribution hub. The DEA sent in an undercover agent who posed as a student. Uh, none of the faculty knew. And she bought like cocaine and heroin from like 20 people who are working with the cartels, including a guy that I, I was on the cross country team with who didn't speak English. And I always thought that was really funny that he was going to high school in America, but didn't speak any English at all. He was cool. We all loved him. He's a good runner. And he, one day he had this giant foil packet of mushrooms and I didn't know what magic mushrooms were. And I thought he was carrying around a package of just regular mushrooms. And I thought that was kind of odd, but um, you know, I didn't smoke pot in high school. And I really didn't smoke pot in college at all. I, I drank all the time. I was a maniac. I mean, partied, I would, you know, there was, if there was booze around in a party, I was there. Didn't matter what day of the week or what time. I was a gamer. And all of my friends were. Um, but I never smoked pot. And uh, it wasn't until 1995, I traveled out of the U.S. on my first, like, photo voyage. 
a first trip where I really had like a list of topics and stories that I was going to dive into and do these photo essays, repatriation of Guatemalan refugees from Mexico. That was the primary topic that I went to Guatemala to photograph. And I also went to language school. So I was in language school for a month. And, um, and then I did these stories. And I started hanging out with all the other expats and Euros that were in the town that I was in. And there were people from, from Switzerland and Sweden and France and England and whatever, and Americans. And some people that I'm still really good friends with. My friend Ted, I met there. He's a writer in New York. Um, we're, still, we're still friends. So we're all hanging around. And I'm probably the only person in the group that hasn't smoked pot. I can almost guarantee that. So we go out one afternoon, and someone had been up to Panahashel, which is up on Lake on the on the big lake in Guatemala, and they had bought you know they had like five dollars, and they were snoop snooping around trying to find pot, and they find these local guys, and they're the guys like I got five bucks, I want to buy some pot, and the guy gives them, so he goes takes the five bucks and disappears, and comes back with a bag of pot that's like a like five pounds of marijuana. And these guys are like, oh my God. And the hard part is he's, the guy's given him so much pot that they can't hide it all in their like baggage and clothing and stuff. So they come back to the town that we're in. And the Europeans apparently have this technique for pot smoking that I was not savvy to at the time, which is a mix of half tobacco, half pot. And again, I don't know anything about pot. And in my head, I built up pot to be something so dramatic, right? It's Nancy Reagan. It was as if Nancy Reagan was on the hippie trail with me in Guatemala in her in her weepeel, her Guatemalan weepeel and sandals. And it was like she was my shadow. And so when these guys are rolling up this joint, which is half tobacco, half pot, it is the size of a cigar. The end of it, it's a cone. It's a cone shape. And the, the diameter of one end is like four inches. And then it goes all the way down to this little tip, this cone. And someone takes like a blowtorch and lights this thing. And they're passing it around in the circle, pre-COVID, by the way, because everybody's sucking on the same joint. And it comes to me, and I'm like, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, you know, Nancy, chill, right? Just relax. Nancy, go shotgun a beer. Come back to me. I'm going to take a hit on this. And so I take a hit. And I take a hit, and I'm talking, I'm not talking a little puff. I'm not talking about a daisy puff. I'm talking about Damien Marley would have stood up and applauded about the hit I took. And so I like, I exhale this thing and I'm like, I'm fine. That was nothing. I've built this up in my head. It's nothing. So the joint makes the circle, makes the trip, the voyage around the sun. And it comes back to me. And I'm like, "Hmm, my mouth's a little dry, but um, why not? I'll take another hit. And I do. And I proceed. And now it's Ziggy Marley who's standing up and applauding me. Mega hit, my friend, and I do it again and again. The joint just keeps coming. It never ends. And by about the fourth time, I'm, a little voice in my head says, you know, you may want to just pass this time. And so approximately 30 seconds later, my world turned inside out. So if you don't know about smoking pot, if you smoke too much, there's a, a sense of paranoia can come creeping in. And when you smoke way too much, that sense of paranoia feels like a tidal wave coming, a black wall coming towards you. And your, your world goes from sunny and 360 degrees to about 7 degrees and staring at the ground in a panic. The only reason I kept it together was that the other people were still there and they were fine and I didn't want to look like an idiot. But I was melting down. 
It was all I could do to not lay down on the ground, crawl into the curb, into the gutter, into the sewer system, and hide until it passed. So my brain, thankfully, said, Milner, you are in deep shit. And the only thing that you can do is stare at the ground. Don't look at anyone. So the town that we were in was built on a grid pattern. And for seven hours, I walked a grid pattern, block by block, street by street, staring at the ground in front of me, saying, don't freak out, don't freak out, don't freak out, for seven hours, pouring sweat, and, and, and night, night fell. We're in the mountains. It's cold. I'm in a t-shirt, pouring sweat, walking a grid pattern for seven hours. And then some point during the night, I encounter two of the people, these two Swedish guys, that I had smoked with. I had no memory of this until the next day. But they said, holy shit, we saw you and you looked so bad. You freaked us out and made us paranoid. And we had to venture off and stare at the ground for hours at a time. So I was so bad, I deflected the paranoia into other people. So at five hours goes by, six hours goes by, seven hours goes by. I'm like, I'm never going to, I'm, I could die out here. I'm never going to make it. Marijuana is evil. So I'm at the time, coincidentally, staying in a house filled with Christian missionaries. So it's all of them and me and a local Guatemalan family the poor family. So the missionaries, like missionaries tend to be, are fairly gung-ho about the whole Jesus thing. And so they, you know, did their best to try to convert me. And I would come home at like three in the morning, hammered, and they'd be like, you know, you're going to hell, but we can save you. And if you sit up with us and do this, and then I would just like pass out in my room. And uh, so I thought to myself, okay, it's seven hours into this hell. I'm never smoking pot again. I have to get through the front door of the house to my room without anyone seeing me. And then I'm going to hide under the bed until sunrise. That was, my, that was legitimately my plan. And everything was fine until I opened the front door. And I opened the front door and standing in formation with their Bibles was the entire crew of missionaries waiting for me. Waiting for Stoner high, paranoid, panicked, and embarrassed, trying to get to my room, and I am facing a gauntlet of Christ in front of me. And I could not even speak. I was speaking in tongues. And I, I remember having an out-of-body experience looking at the main missionary, the tip of the spear. She was small and blonde and had the Bible in her hand, and she was talking to me. And I, and I was like outside of myself, looking at myself, trying to move my limbs and arms and act coherent and nod and, and, and act like, you know, hey, this is maybe really is good for me, and, and I'll do this as I was angling towards the room. And somehow I, I, I crossed that gauntlet. I got, I got through it, and, uh, and I did. I got under the bed. And I wrote it out. I wrote it out like if you've ever paddled into a wave that's far too large for your skill level and you realize there's a legit chance I could die here. And suddenly what you thought was fun was no longer fun and it was life and death. That's kind of where I was at that moment. And so, thank God, I got into the room. I shut the door, a tiny room, got under the bed, wrote it out. And I was like, marijuana is evil. 
and I'm never doing this again, and I'm never smoking this again. So that didn't last. Um, now, I, was, I did not become a stoner. I've never been a stoner in my life. And I, from that moment on, I did not, it was probably years before I smoked pot again. And I'm bringing this up, one, because it's a funny story, I think. Two, because pot now is everywhere, obviously. The House just decriminalized it at a national level. It's never going to pass the Senate. If the repubs are in, if the Dems are in, maybe. But if the, if the Republicans keep uh, control of the Senate, it's never going to pass. It should. The war on drugs is a joke, et cetera. But I'm bringing this up because because of the Lyme disease, I learned a lot about pot over the years. And there's an upside to pot and a downside to pot. But there's also an upside to alcohol and a downside to alcohol. Alcohol, to me, from what I've learned now, is much more destructive on my body and my brain than pot is. And so I use pot now because of Lyme. And I don't do it every day. I don't even do it every week. I just do it occasionally. And what I have found is that it is this wonderful combination of ingredients that you can, you can refine what you need to such a level now that you can pinpoint the ex- exact experience that you need and get nothing less and nothing more. So I smoke a kind of pot that is for your body only. It doesn't affect your brain. I'm sure there's a little, there is an effect that's happening in, in, your, in my brain, but I don't feel it when it's happening. And where I feel it is in my body because it takes that inflammation from the Lyme and reduces it to a level that it's kind of astounding. Um, nothing I took pharmaceuticals from the doctors helped at all. In fact, they made everything worse and the side effects were horrific. And so in my head, again, Nancy Reagan was there with me when I got Lyme and I was like, damn it. You know, you're back and you're telling me not to do this pot stuff, but I'm going to try. And my doctors are going, do the pot stuff, do the pot stuff. And Nancy was like, no, you idiot. Just say no. And so I did it. And I have to say, I'm kind of amazed. And it's, it's, the experience is enough for me to say, I don't know enough about it, enough about this plant, because it is an incredible plant. And if you, if you have, if you're like me and you have built this thing up in your head to be something it's not, which is the devil itself, right? And I have, I have friends who are vehemently anti-marijuana. I mean vehemently. If they find out that I smoke pot, they are just lecturing and railing against me, and they will turn around and go get absolutely shit-faced on alcohol, fall down, break an arm, get in a fight, and justify the entire thing because alcohol's legal, so it's a weird dynamic, and I'm bringing it up because I'm sure that some of you out there have your own pot story, your, your own paranoia story, and these are great stories because anyone who smoked pot enough probably has had this happen to them. I, like an idiot, did it on day one, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe I got it out of the, got it out of the way, um, and here's I'm the last thing I'm going to say about this, and I just told this to someone else last night who was having a lot of trouble sleeping and had been going on and on and on and tried everything and all the pharmaceuticals and the pharmaceuticals left them feeling really bad and they you know they couldn't come out of some of these deep sleeps and blah 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 and i was trying to explain explain this and they said look you know i smoked pot and i had this horrible experience um i had nightmares and i was paranoid and i said i i had the same thing you know told them, i gave them a brief brief uh, glimpse of this story i just told told everybody here and um and I said, but here's the thing I learned when I started smoking pot when I got Lyme. And again, when I say started smoking pot, it was like once every now and then, not on any kind of consistent basis. It was only when I felt to myself, Jesus, I need some help, and I need to like try to reduce inflammation in my brain, 
and in my body, and it's the best thing I've found. So I said to him, I go, I also had a parent, uh, you know, even when I started smoking pot with Lyme, I also had times where I would start to get paranoid. That same feeling that would remind me of that fateful day in Guatemala. And here's the thing, the, what I did that I think is really important, and it kind of changed my perspective on the whole thing, is the last time this happened where I took a hit of pot and I was like, uh-oh, you know, I, I think I'm going to start to get paranoid. And anyone who's had this happen, you know that once you turn towards that paranoia, you are toast. There is no coming back. Once you fall prey and say, I'm paranoid, I'm paranoid, it's over. You can't, you're, you're in for the duration. But here's what I did. When I felt that paranoia coming on, I said to myself, I have two choices. I can turn and run, or I can turn and I can embrace it and say, I understand that that's an option, but I'm going to go this other way. I'm going to take whatever that energy is from the paranoia, and I'm going to turn it, and I'm going to go the other way, and I'm not going to be paranoid. And the second I made that decision, it's never happened again. And I think, oddly enough, and I know this sounds out there, and I have absolutely no evidence or data to support this point of view, I think that that, in essence, is the point of the entire plant. I think the plant was put on the planet for us to use and make that decision because that decision is really a reflection of your entire life philosophy. There's something bad coming. There's something paranoid coming. There's something negative coming. I can turn into it and say, oh no, oh no, and it's over. Or I can turn and say, that's not me. I'm going to, I see it. I acknowledge it. I know it's real, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go the other way. And the second I did, it was like a, a philosophical change brought on by smoking pot. And I know that anyone who's anti-drug out there is probably recoiling right now and saying, you are a hippie beatnik that should be jailed and incarcerated for the rest of your life. Hopefully not. But that's my funny pot smoking story. Again, I'm not a stoner. I kind of wish I was, but I'm not. And um, I've never hung out with Snoop. I've never been to Jamaica. Uh, I've never been to the mountains of Ash uh, Afghanistan and brought back some of that sticky icky. So um, anyway, just wanted to share that. I hope this was a good podcast. And uh, next week, I think I'm going to do some more stuff about photography because I haven't really done much photography talk because I haven't really done much photography. But thanks for tuning in, and I'll talk to you soon.